uh, book of Ephesians, chapter 1, because we are cruising along so fast that we uh, are still in chapter 1, verse 4. Okay. Hey, let's have a word of prayer. Just ask God just to bless the time, help us to stay true to Scripture as best we can, and just to guide us as we study tonight. So let's pray. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, I I just ask that you would come to this place, that you would meet with us, that you would open Scripture up, that our eyes would be willing to see. God, help us to be honest uh, in our discussion and to be willing to say, look, this this may be challenging to me and it may be different than, than what I've been taught as a young person, but I'm willing to look at Scripture and evaluate and figure out what is it that I really know, what is it that I truly believe. So God... We're just going to invite you tonight, guide us. But God, also hear this part of our heart, that we refuse to be fat on Scripture. We choose to live out what we learn and put it into practice in our lives. That that the last thing of our hearts would be to come in this room, hear what you've asked us to do, and walk out the back door and say, no. So instead, we come with soft hearts and gentle hearts saying, if you would but speak to us, we would obey. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Ephesians chapter 1. Okay, we cruised through last week, talked a little bit about uh, the whole idea of Calvinism, went through that. I don't necessarily want to go back and redo that. I've already made a couple hundred of you mad, so why do that again? Um, But uh, in the process of doing this, um, the reason we took that little detour is because some of the verses we're going to tackle right off the front tonight are some of the strongest verses in regards to Calvinism. So we are going to take just a moment or two, because it would not be fair if we didn't, as we go, to look at and say, well then, if, if we're not necessarily ascribing to the tenets of Calvinism, how do we answer these verses, which seem to be so powerful and in some ways so clear... Uh, in Calvinistic teaching. So let's go in. It's Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, we'll start together in verse 4. Here's what it says. For he chose us in him. And we said even though it's not capitalized, we still are confident that he is God and him is Jesus Christ. So he, God, chose us in him, Jesus Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight In love, he predestined us to the adoption of sons through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will. And so basically what would happen is is those who would ascribe to Calvinism would say, well, right there, we just proved our point. It says before the creation of the world, so before anybody ever had the opportunity to choose anything, before you ever heard the gospel, God chose you in Jesus Christ. So point uh, proved. So let's go back, take a second quick look here. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. To what? Does it say that he chose us to be saved? What does it say he chose us to? To be holy, to be blameless. So let me ask this question. Saved happens in a moment when I ask Jesus Christ in my heart. In other words, I come to that place where I go, okay, I get it. I, I have a debt. I have sinned. I, I, and I don't have a way of fixing that myself. 
This is not a barter system. This isn't two goods, cancel out one bad. It doesn't work that way. I'm in debt, and I'm in a debt that I cannot pay. I need a Savior to save me from the debt. And you and I then say, okay, so I'm asking for what Jesus did on the cross to pay my debt because I cannot pay it. I can't be religious enough. I can't be good enough. I can't be baptized enough. I can't read my Bible enough to pay this debt. I'm asking for a Savior. And in that moment when I ask for a Savior, how quickly does salvation happen? Three weeks, four weeks. How how long to get saved when I ask for a Savior? Okay, Scripture simply says, as many believed to them, he gave the right to be the sons of God. The moment of my belief, so salvation, salvation as you and I think about and experience it, is punctiliar. Salvation happens in that moment of belief, right? What about holiness? When does holiness happen? How many here would say, you know what, I have, I have received the second blessing and I no longer sin and therefore I am holy. Any, anybody here want to try that one? Because that's going to fly like a lead balloon, but you can try it. Any, anybody here attained holiness yet? So how long does holiness take? A lifetime. Matter of fact, the truth is you, none of us will actually completely attain holiness until when? heaven. So salvation happened in a moment. Holiness. Okay. Salvation. Holiness. Holiness takes a lifetime. Matter of fact, we call that process of becoming holy. And what what was the other word that it uses in the passage? Blameless. How many here could say, hey, I live an absolutely blameless life? I mean, I, a matter of fact, just today I went all through the day. I, I didn't do one thing. Some might go, how many could say, I went through the week. I am blameless in the week. Okay, so how long does blameless, and how long does it take to begin to be able to live blamelessly? Lifetime again. So let me ask you a question. We just said salvation happens in a moment. Matter of fact, every single person in this room who's asked Jesus Christ to be their Savior has the right to raise their hand and say, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. I am a believer in Christ. That happened. But when it comes to blamelessness and holiness, we all admitted none of us have that. And we're working on it. So let me ask you a question. Let's go back to verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be what? Saved? Holy and blameless. Is he talking about salvation in this passage? Or is he talking about maturity in this passage? And all of a sudden you go, oh, wait a minute. This isn't a salvation passage in the first. This is, this is a growing up in Jesus passage. This is God saying, look, I have figured out and I chose you. And the moment you became a Christian, here's what I said. I will work on you, 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 work on you. And I will make you blameless and I will make you holy. And anybody been in the holiness 101 class? And sometimes the holiness 101 class isn't a lot of fun, right? Because God puts you in the fire and starts teaching you lessons you didn't ever want to learn. That's growing up in Jesus. That's not getting saved. All right. And the big Bible word, anyone know what the big Bible word is for becoming mature? Say it out loud. We can sanctification. 
here's my argument. I don't think Ephesians chapter 4 is talking about salvation at all. And the choosing of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 has nothing to do with choosing someone to salvation. It says, I chose you to be holy and blameless. And what he's saying is, look, once you become a Christian, here's what you just need to know. I've got a plan. You will become more holy. You will become more blameless because I will work on you, work on you, work on you until you do. And any Christian who sits in the room and says, I think I get a pass from holiness. I think I get a pass on growing up in Jesus. Good luck. There's just no chance because what Ephesians 1, 4 says, he chose that the moment you became a Christian, his plan for you would be to grow up in Jesus. And that's the plan. Matter of fact, if you don't think that's true, go to verse 5. He predestined. What does predestined mean? It means he decided a destination for us. Predestined. He decided where we were going. He predestined us to what? To be what? Adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And so then all of a sudden you come back and go, whoa, 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 Lynn. Adoption sounds like salvation because it says you and I were predestined to be adopted as sons. So that verse, I think, maybe blows you away because that one sounds like salvation. Sounds like sonship going on. You follow me so far? Are we confused together? Okay. All right, so here's what I need you to do. I need you to put on your thinking caps. Because if you'll put them on and if you'll follow me through, we're going to get to the other side and you're going to go, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, okay? So put on your thinking caps. All right, so here's the big question that we're going to answer together. We just said the choosing was choosing that you would grow up, not choosing to salvation. I'm going to suggest that adoption is also about growing up. And not about salvation. You go, well, that, wait, I'm not sure. I don't know. Okay, so here we go. Grab your Bibles. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. Okay, and again, I'm just, right now, you've got to put your thinking caps on because if you will, we're going to get to a good place together. Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Actually, we'll do 22. Let's go to 22. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Here's what it says. You ready? We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves have been groaning. Who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for what? The adoption of sons. Whoa, 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 whoa. That passage just said that you and I are waiting for the adoption of sons. I thought when you became a Christian, you were a son. And this passage says you and I are waiting for the adoption as sons. So stop and think about this a second. If you and I are waiting for the adoption of sons, and if the adoption of sons is salvation, what would that verse have just said? That you and I aren't sons yet. Which would mean you and I aren't saved yet. Is that true? Can that possibly be true? 
Because if the adoption of sons that we are waiting for is salvation, then you and I aren't saved yet. Because we're waiting for that moment to come. And yet scripture says just the opposite. Matter of fact, let's go to a couple of verses. Stay in, uh, stay in Romans 8 and go to verse 14. So same passage, same author. Verse 14, here's what it says. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. Not will be sons of God. They are sons of God. Well, how can the sons of God be waiting for their adoption? Because adoption has nothing to do with sonship. Okay? Yes? I have a question about the word chose. Okay. Um, does that mean... Like, I'm hung up on the word chose because does that mean that he chose some believers not to grow? No. So, so who did... So if it doesn't affect your salvation, then why would he not choose after you're saved to grow? All right, say it, say it again. Say the last part again. Um, if his choosing doesn't affect your salvation because it's not talking about salvation, then... It's talking about maturity. Then um, what does his choosing, like, what is he choosing for us, I guess? Because if he doesn't choose for anyone not to grow, then what is the choice? Hmm. Okay. So I think I got the question. Okay. So here's what I'm going to do. You're going to, we're going to get back to that in a minute. Okay. But it's a good question. I like the question. All right, so go with me again. We're going to stay right where we were. Remember we were saying, is adoption salvation? And if adoption is salvation, then you and I are not saved because we're waiting for the adoption. And yet scripture said that we were sons. Grab your Bibles and go with me to Galatians real quick. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 verse 26. You are all, next word, sons of God. Present tense. Through faith in Jesus Christ. So what can it possibly be talking about when it says, you and I are waiting for the adoption of sons? Isn't that an interesting question? Anybody want to take any guesses? To have our eternal body. Okay. All right. So, and I think you're there. What else? Anyone else? What does it mean when it says we're waiting for adoption of sons? Did it possibly mean like uh, we're born again, but we're waiting for our inheritance in heaven? Waiting for our inheritance in heaven. So here's the best I can give you guys. When scripture talks about this idea of adoption of sons, what it's trying to make really, really clear, and I think we hit on it when we just said these two answers. It's trying to say this, look, you're sons now. You are sons now. But what you're waiting for is all the benefits of sonship. Because the answer is right now, we aren't holy yet. But when we get to heaven, what's one of the benefits of sonship or childship in Christ? Then we're made holy. We're sitting in bodies. And I'm just going to tell you guys, I just had my birthday and you guys did this last week. And I'm going to tell you, things creak that didn't used to creak. And things move slower than they used to move. And my mind is writing checks that my body can no longer cash. Okay? So... I, I'm just going to tell you, I'm getting to the point where I go, you know what, having that 21-year-old body sounds pretty darn good again. But I'm waiting for that. I, that's, a, that's a benefit of sonship I still don't have. My inheritance, what about, what about 
all the wrongs of my life being made right? What about standing in front of God and him saying, look, I'm going to reward you according to how you live. Those are all benefits of sonship I don't have yet. The adoption of sons is saying, look, 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 look. You're a son. You've made a son. The paperwork just isn't finished yet. Okay, it's like it's like we're still waiting for it to come back in the mail certified. Okay, so you're a son. It's done. I mean, nothing's going to change that. It's just you don't get the full benefits yet till the paperwork's done. And that's heaven. That's when you and I stand in heaven and God says, okay, all the benefits, everything legal is done. Everything is finished. And you have 100% of the benefits of sonship. Okay, so stop and think about this. If that's true, then here when it says you and I have been predestined to finally get all the benefits of sonship. Not sonship, but the benefits of sonship. Is he talking about salvation? Or is he talking about people who are already Christians receiving the blessing of being a Christian? The adoption is finalized. Here's the closest I get. I don't know if this is going to help. I may, may be confused. I'm graduating high school. And uh, I, it was the night and we did the ceremony and, and I uh, walked forward and they handed me the little folder, the little sleeve on the deal. And I get back to my seat. I open it up. It's empty. I think, well, maybe they didn't want you to mess them up, you know, because it's graduation. So I turn to my friend on my right and I go, uh... Your folder empty? He goes, no, right here. Got my name on it, the whole bit. I turn the guy on the other side of me. I go, is your folder empty? He goes, no, I've got my thing right here. I, I am freaked out. And the problem is graduation was on a Friday night. So the offices were closed the next day. I spent the next two days in just panic, panic. I went on Monday morning and I said, hey, uh, my folder was empty. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. Your teacher forgot to turn in the grades. And I'm going, what? No, your teacher was late, didn't hand in her grades. And since we didn't have the paperwork finalized, we couldn't give you your diploma. But it's in now. She turned it in over the weekend. So here's your diploma. So here's my question. On Friday night, did I graduate? Yeah. But on Monday, I got proof. Okay. So, and that's kind of this story. Hey, are you a Christian when you, yeah, you're exactly, but you don't get all the benefits. You don't get the piece of paper till you're in heaven. That's when everything is done. Everything is finalized. All the benefits of sonship. And you can write it on your resume when you get to heaven. The legal portion of it is done when you and I get to heaven. It's not talking about being saved. It's talking about the benefits of a saved person. Okay. It's different. We had a question. Going back to the part where you're asking, or you was talking about eagerly awaiting the adoptions of sons, is it possible that they're also speaking of like waiting for salvation to, to spread, for, for there to become more believers? Yeah, I don't, I don't, that's a great question, and I, I get where you get it from, but I don't think it is in here because here, let's go back and read it again. For he chose us, talking to Christians in this moment. In him, to be, from the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us. Again, talking about Christians. So he's, he, he's talking, and here's, here's the, the big point in there is, he's talking to people who've already believed about this topic. So I don't, I don't think it's a reference to those who haven't come yet and haven't made that yet. But a good question.
Okay, we're good. We're covered. So here's the, here's the long and the short of it. I'm just going to suggest to you that neither of these two verses, which are the verses which are most often pulled out to say, see, God chose us and predestined us before the beginning of the world to be Christians, isn't talking about Christians at all. It's talking about a holy life becoming... Matter of fact, let me give you one more verse real quick. If this one doesn't land it for you, then uh, we're just done. So go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Because here's the deal, guys. You and I have quoted this verse a thousand times to people. This is the one that you and I, we said a little bit, I think it was last week, we we say this to people every time people are having problems and they get mad at us and want to hit us for saying it. Here it is. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And guys, if this doesn't shed light on foreknowledge, on predestination, on all of it, then we're, we're just in trouble together. So here we go. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Here's what it says. For we know that in all things God works for the good for those who love God love him and who are called according to his purpose. And the problem is we stop on verse 28. And so then we say to people, oh, no, no, no. God works all things to good. Don't worry. But here's where we, here's where we blow this one. Who gets to define good? See, if I define good, good is a 40-foot yacht. Good is my own private jet. Okay? Good is a monster house and a big race. That's good. I mean, that... So let me ask a question. Who gets to define when the Bible says God works all things for our good, who gets to define good? Because here's the problem too. When the, someone I love is sick, I think I've got a pretty good definition of what good is. I'm pretty sure good means God has to heal them. So let me ask again. When God is working all things together for good, who gets to decide what good is? Who does? God does. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, wait a minute. Because here's the, here's the thing I'm going to say to you. If that's true, if God gets to define what good is, then you and I just lost the right to ever be angry with him. Because isn't it the truth? The reason we get mad at God is because he did not behave the way we told him to. I prayed, God. I told you what you needed to do. I told you that my boyfriend needed to propose. I told you that I needed to get a raise. I told you that you needed to heal my loved one. I told you what to do, God, in order to be good. And you weren't good. You were bad. But if the answer is that God gets to decide what is good, and if you and I really believe that, then you and I just lost any chance to ever be mad at God again. Because he gets to decide what is good. And, watch this, the verse we never read. Go to verse 29. Let's go to verse 28 again. Let's keep in context. We know that in all things God works for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And then here we go, verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also, here's the word again, predestined. He he arranged a destination for us, not salvation. Okay, you ready? To be what? What's the next part of the phrase? Conformed to the likeness of his son. Guess what God just said good is? Good is whatever I have to do to make you look more like Jesus. That's good. So if I need to spank you, in order for you to stop doing what you shouldn't do and you be more like Jesus, then spanking is good. If I have to put you in a really, really hard situation to teach you patience, 
then a really, really, really hard situation is good if it teaches you to be more like Jesus. And God's definition of good, you ready for this? Anything that teaches you to be more like His Son is good. Which means problems could be good. Getting fired from my job could be good. The person I love dying of cancer might actually be good if it teaches me to be more like Jesus. Because at the end of the day, that's what we're predestined to. At the end of the day, that's the goal that every one of us believers would mature up and look like Jesus Christ when God is done. That's good. Which means when you and I sit there, think about this. If that's true, and here I am, and all of a sudden God brings a problem in my life, and it's unfair. I mean, it's horribly unfair. I didn't do anything to deserve it. I didn't do anything wrong. What do you and I usually do when a problem like that comes in our life? What do we usually do? Come on. We pray. And we say, God, there is a horrible, horrible, unfair thing. And this isn't right. And I haven't done anything to deserve this. So God, please, please, please do what? Take it away. And then, okay, and sometimes he does. But sometimes he doesn't. And in those moments when I go, wait, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Time out, time out, time out. I haven't sinned. I haven't done anything wrong. And, and now something horribly unfair is happening in my life. I prayed. I prayed. Matter of fact, my, my spiritual friend said to me, maybe I didn't have enough faith. So I prayed it over and over again so I could faith it up. And it's still there. I still have the problem. So apparently God has forgotten me. Apparently God has abandoned me. Apparently God is mad at me. Apparently God is being mean to me. Really? Really? I thought the scripture said that God works all things for my good. Is it possible that that unfair moment, that moment I got fired from the job and I didn't do what was wrong, in that moment my spouse treated me horribly, horribly, and is it possible that that unfair moment God is allowing in my life because living that moment well doing what I'm supposed to do in that moment will actually teach me to be more like Jesus. Is that possible? And then here's the next question. If it is, if it's possible that God allows pain and allows hard times and allows hurt in my life and unfairness in my life to teach me to be more like Jesus, because here's what I'm just going to suggest. Jesus had a lot of unfair things happen to him and lived them well. Matter of fact, I'm going to suggest that almost every person you know of in the Bible had horrible moments of unfairness. And the defining moment of their life is that they lived them well. Talk to Joseph. Talk to Daniel. And if that's true, if unfair moments can actually be the teaching moments of God, then is it possible that when I rail against and when I fight back and when I argue against it, I'm actually fighting back and railing and arguing against God? Is that possible? He has predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son. Yep.
Lynn, I know there's probably some people that would say, um, yeah, but, but I've lost a loved one. What about them? That wasn't fair to them. Uh, in saying that, they're, to me, they're in a better place. They're right. absent in the flesh, present with the Lord. So that's a better place. So they're probably looking on us, poor us. But nevertheless. Sure. And, and, if, and if the loved one that I lost is a believer, then that's absolutely true. There's moments I may lose an unbelieving relative and I go, wow, I, I wish God would have given more time. I wish God would have allowed them to live a little longer to hear the story, you know, and, and so, but you're right. If they're a believer, then I go, those guys are all laughing at us for being sad that they're gone. They're all going, you don't, you don't get this. Yeah. You just said something I thought about. What about people who something really bad does happen to, to, to them and they never get over it and they leave a miserable life and they... They go away from God, and they, they never come back because they blame God for it. Yeah. What, what about them? I mean, and, and maybe they were born-again Christians already, but they're, they're, they never get over that. Right. And they blame God. Right. And, and you can't say, I mean, what about little kids? How can someone getting cancer and dying be fair to them and I, I just don't understand this stuff. Okay. Um, it just seems really mean sometimes for okay. God to be so mean to, to have a little girl be burned up in a in a oven. What is she learning from that? Mm-hmm. I, I don't understand that. Right. So here's here's the thing. I I cannot I cannot answer every unfairness. I can't. Because at the end of the day, I don't know the answer to every unfairness. Only God's going to be able to answer every unfairness. And this is an old, old, old illustration. Some of you guys are going to go, I heard that one 100 years ago. But anybody in here at crochet nowadays at all? Okay, a couple of us. All right, so there you go. If you've ever seen crochet on the front side, it's magnificent. I mean, it is this beautiful image. But if you've ever seen the back side of it, it is nasty looking. It is ugly. Matter of fact, you can't even from the backside a lot of times even recognize what's going on in the front. You and I as humans live on the backside. You and I sit on this moment. We go, whoa, 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 whoa God. I don't understand a little girl being stuck in I don't. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't, I don't, there's no way that makes sense. That's no way the picture works right there. And God says, someday I'll show you the other side. Someday I'll show you what I was crocheting here. I can't answer that. I, I don't have the wisdom or the knowledge to explain each situation. Here's one that I think I can explain that's unfair. Okay. Uh, some of you guys will know this story a little bit. My baby sister was autistic. She was autistic before anybody knew what autism was. So she's growing up and they're just saying, hey, you know, she's retarded. When you took her to somewhere to have care and for them to help with her, no one had any idea how to help with Diane. They just didn't because no one had even diagnosed autism at the time, let alone any sort of treatment, any sort of behavior modification, any of it. Crazy part was we as a family worked with Diane so long that by the time she was about 12, 13 years old, they were for the first time saying, hey, we think we've, we think we've identified this new condition. It's called autism. We took Diane in for diagnosis and all the things they, that were classic autism, Diane didn't do anymore because we'd worked with her so hard as a family to not do those behaviors that they said, you're, you're, 
daughter's not, your sister's not autistic. She doesn't have any of the, We said, no, if you could have seen her when she was six and seven and eight. I mean, we've worked hours to have her not behave that way. And, but that's how she was. And, but anyways, uh, so every time I would come home, I'd come home from school. I'd bring my friends. Well, Diane wanted attention. I mean, that was part of her thing. And so she would do anything. She didn't care. She would do anything to have attention. She would turn over furniture. Because in her mind, even if she had a spanking for that, she didn't care because it was attention. In her mind, it was a good trade, attention. She'd go over, turn on the stove, and put her hand on the stove and burn her fingers because it was attention. She could get it, and she wanted someone to sit and pay attention to her every moment. I'd walk in the house, she'd walk up and she'd hit you because she wanted attention. Um, I, I won't even go through the things, the list of things that Diane did in order to have attention and i'll be very very honest with you as a young man trying to bring friends home um it was embarrassing diane would run through the house naked just whatever that was to get attention i spent an awful lot of my life going god this is so unfair i'm being raised in a family where my dad took off he was supposed to be a christian he left our home i've got a baby sister who's autistic we're growing up financially just I, I, guys, the church would bring us cans without the labels on because they'd get them from the store and the store would give them the cans to give to needy families, us, because the labels were gone or they were dented and they couldn't sell them in the store and the church would bring them to us. I, I can remember one of our cars sitting in the driveway of our house for about eight months. There were cobwebs growing underneath until the church finally came down and helped mom repair the car. And I, I'm just going to tell you as a young man, I'm going, this, is, this stinks. This is so unfair. When Diane was 16 years old, and my mom had just dedicated her life to raising Diane, I mean, my mom had figured out, raising Diane is my call from God. And when Diane was 16 years old, we had her in a care facility. Mom had made that choice that she would be there, and then she would bring Diane home on the weekends. And she had done that partly to try to give us kids some semblance of a teenage life. And so... Diane was at the care facility, and they uh, put her in a bathtub. Um, the gentleman, who we had begged him never to have a gentleman watch, my baby sister, uh, got up and decided to leave the room and fill out some reports for an hour and a half. And when he came back, she had slipped under the water and had a convulsion and died. And I'm just going to tell you, unfair, unfair, unfair. Unfair for Diane to be born that way unfair for us to have to grow up with a little sister with autism when nobody would do what autism was and then if you're going to do that and have this little girl born and then she gets to die when she's 60 i mean let's just talk unfair i'm convinced diane was a gift to me i'm convinced that god looked down and saw an ornery young man and i'm just going to tell you i i have within me and i'm i'm mean enough the way it is but i have within me the ability to be ornery, 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 ornery. And I, I have the ability to be a tough cookie. And God gave me a little sister that every day when I walked in from school needed mercy. And God taught an ornery young man mercy and grace. I wonder why he did that. I think it's because he knew one day that young man was going to be called to ministry. And have to pastor a church. And that without Diane in my life, I would have been completely unprepared. God used my little sister to make me more like Jesus. Unfair, 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 
thank you. Thank you for Diane. Thank you. But in the moment, I hated it. And in the moment, I was embarrassed. And today, she was one of the most precious gifts of my life. And all I'm saying is God works all things, even the things I don't like and even the things I struggle with and even the things in the moment where I go, how can that person die and how can I lose that job and how can that happen to make you and me more like Jesus if we'll let him. And so back to your question, if we'll let him. And it is, it is, this is where we miss the boat. This is where we get all confused. When we get mad at God and all God is doing is helping us be more like Jesus. And it's a mistake to get angry at him for it. It's a mistake. And it's why you and I in that moment have got to say, look, 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 look. Who gets to choose good? Because if you're going to choose good, you'll spend the rest of your life mad at God. But if God gets to choose good, you may just get to peek on the other side of the crochet you may get a little bit of a glimpse of what God is doing in your life. And you may look just a little bit more like Jesus for it. Okay? Were you and I predestined? Absolutely you were predestined. You were predestined not to be saved. You were predestined to look like His Son, Jesus Christ. So let me give you one last illustration. Where are we at on time? Uh, let's see, we've got... 19 minutes. Oh, oh, wow, we got tons. We even get another verse in here quick. All right, so let me give you one last illustration to help this one out. Maybe I'll give you two. Okay. Is God in charge? Absolutely, guys. God is in charge. Does God win in the end? Absolutely. God wins in the end, and God's plan is the one that comes out. That's the whole book of Revelation. God wins in the end. But here's what I'm going to suggest. That life is a little bit like a bowling alley. Okay? And when you go to bowl, uh, there are gutters on the side, thank heaven. Right? Because if there weren't gutters, you'd end up in the other guy's lane every once in a while. So are there things that God says, no, 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 I'm God. You will not go there. You will not do that. You will not behave that way. I will not let that happen. Absolutely. And there are moments when God puts up gutters. But what you also need to know is, is that inside the gutters, human choice. Which means you and I can get out of the will of God, and you and I can make horrible decisions, and other people around us can make horrible decisions. And you and I can end up with the splash over of other people's horrible decisions. It's one of the reasons it's important that the best relationships in your life are with other committed Christians who are committed to rolling strikes for Jesus and not doing stupid things in their life and playing around the gutters of life, okay? So there is free will. There is limits to what God will allow because God is sovereign and God is in control. Here's maybe another way of explaining it. I'm a kid, and one day I'm building a fort in the sandbox, and I decided as I was building the fort in the sandbox that I was going to build a lake on this side and I was going to make the water come over and get to this side. And in my plan, I thought, hey, I'll just dig a little ditch and turn on the water and it'll flow over. Anybody want to guess what happened in the sandbox when I filled up the lake on this side and started the water down the ditch? Well, yeah... I, didn't necessarily crumble, but here's what happened. The water came to low spots that I hadn't seen ahead of time, and all of a sudden the water was going over here. 
Guess what I did next? I took my stick and pulled it back to here. And then the water went over here, and I took my stick and I pulled it back. Eventually, I got the water here. Okay? I think God does exactly that in our lives. God says, hey, the easiest way for us to do this would be if you obeyed me in everything and did exactly what I asked you to do. That would be the straight line. Guess what we do? We find all the low spots. We do it our way. And so God in that moment, is God all confused? Is all God all... That God's not freaked out. He goes, really? We're going to do this the hard way? Okay. And he takes his stick and he brings us back on track. And then you and I stay on track for a while. And then you and I find another low spot in our life, a place of disobedience, a place in which we exercise human free will. And God goes, okay, all right, spanking number two. Okay, we'll do it. And he gets us back online. And guess what? At the end of the day, guess where you'll end up? You will end up looking like Jesus. Even if you have to die and go to heaven to get it done, you will end up looking like Jesus. Okay? Because he predestined you to be there. Okay? He will get it done. The question just is, how much fighting are you going to do on the way? How many low spots are you going to allow in your life? Okay? All right. Hope maybe some of that helps a little bit. All right. So back to the passage. Ephesians. Okay. And we have cruised all the way to verse 6. Here we go. To the praise and to the glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves, in him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. What does redemption mean? Huh? Okay, so microphone, let's do that so make sure we get on. What does redemption mean? Our debt has been repaid. The debt has been paid. Okay, so redeeming means the debt was paid. How does scripture here say the debt was paid? By what? By what? By the blood. Here's what you need to know, guys, and this is a big deal. The blood is a big thing. Matter of fact, in the early days of Christianity, critics of Christianity used to say, you guys have a bloody religion. Why did they say that? Because you and I taught, because early Christians knew this beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the only way to forgiveness of sins was through the blood. And what they would say to other faiths and other religions is, guys, you can't possibly have an answer. You can't possibly have a fix because you don't have any blood. Matter of fact, grab your Bibles. Go with me real quick to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. It's going to be almost to the back of your Bible. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Here's what it says. You ready? In fact... The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with what? Blood. And when we're talking about what blood are we talking about? What blood? Not animal blood. The blood of Jesus on the cross. So here's, here, here we go real quick. In the Old Testament, they had to shed the blood of animals. They brought it to the temple. They put it on an altar. They, okay, hey, that's five years of Bible college to get to that, okay, seminary, everything, okay, so they took a little lamb, and they put the lamb, and remember, they'd, they'd slice the, they'd kill the lamb, they'd shed the blood, and then the lamb was burned up on the altar, okay, when they did that, did that 
take care of their sins? How many say yes? How many say no? Okay, the right answer is yes, no. Okay. No, it did not take care of their sins because it did not pay the price for their sins. It didn't. The, there's nothing that animal could do to pay the price for their sins. It wasn't blameless. It wasn't spotless. It didn't have a decision to make. It didn't have a conscience. No, that animal could not possibly pay for their sins. But here's what God said. If you will bring that lamb and slay that lamb, I will give you, in essence, credit. I, I will, for one year, close my eyes to your sin. Remember, they had to come back every year and do it again. But what you're doing when you slay that lamb is you are saying this. I know I can't pay for my sin. I know that in order for my sin to be taken care of, something has to die on my behalf. And I know that one day God will offer the perfect sacrifice for me. So God said, look, every year you come on the Day of Atonement, you offer the lamb. And the Bible says, and I will wink. Maybe a better word for us is I will blink. I will close my eyes to your sin for a year. But you've got to come back the next year and offer that sacrifice again. Because here's what you're doing. It is a picture that one day the lamb will be slain. So this doesn't work, but it's an amazing act of faith that says you are trusting that one day God will provide the lamb. So the blood of that lamb does not save anybody. The blood of this lamb does. That's the blood you and I count on. Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. And the truth is, you and I as Christians should sit here here tonight with pride and say, you better believe we are bloody Christians. We absolutely, unequivocally believe in the blood of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins and nothing else. And here's why that's important. If I believe that the blood of Jesus Christ saves me from my sin and nothing else, then what are some of the nothing else's that I do not believe save me? What are some of the things that other religions and other people count on to save them that's not the blood of Jesus? Works. Baptism. Attendance. Communion. And here's what you know, guys. I'm just going to say this out loud. Anytime you run into any religion that says, we have a formula to get you to heaven, and all their formulas all are, hey, you've got to do our rules, attend our church, do our things, and that gets you to heaven. It is wrong. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And the answer at the beginning of the day, the middle of the day, and the end of the day is simply this. The cross of Jesus is what saves me. Not church attendance, not last rites, not confession to a priest, not baptism, not taking communion. None of that saves me. The blood of Jesus Christ, my Savior, saves me. Beginning, middle, end of conversation. The rest of it I do to obey. I don't do it to become a Christian. Okay, so we had a question? All right. And forgive me if this is like a big derail, but I just have to ask right okay. this moment. You know, we're talking Old Testament versus New Testament. You know, 
before Jesus and then after Jesus, and we're talking about everything being so predestined, the earlier when, when they're sacrificing the lamb, I mean, are they actually following God's word or are they kind of like misinterpreting it? I mean, yeah. does, does he know eventually it's going to change and that's the plan all along? Or? Okay, so I'm going to argue, and it's a great question, I'm going to argue it didn't change. I'm going to argue that God simply didn't tell them all the story because they weren't ready for all the story. Does that make sense? So, Old Testament, God commands them. They're not doing anything wrong. They're doing exactly what he said. And they are bringing the lamb. And they're, they're sacrificing. I think it looks better than the first one. But all right. So they're bringing the lamb and they're sacrificing the lamb. God says all through this, all through the Old Testament, this isn't the final lamb. There is coming a lamb. Matter of fact, think about this for a second. John the Baptist, beginning of the Gospels, John the Baptist is baptizing people in the Jordan River. Remember that? Jesus comes walking up, and John the Baptist says, hey, look, it's Jesus. He didn't say that. And Jesus, think about this, Jesus is his cousin, so he knows exactly who Jesus is. And he doesn't say, hey, look, there's Jesus, my cousin. What does John the Baptist say when Jesus arrives on the scene? Behold, the Lamb of God. What did John the Baptist understand? The sacrifice just walked up. Behold, the Lamb of God. See, we brought our lambs. See, I brought my lamb out of my flock. You brought your lamb out of your flock. Behold, the Lamb of God. Isn't that interesting? Beginning of Jesus' ministry, his first introduction... Behold, the Lamb of God. Okay? Here's what I'm going to argue. When these guys sacrificed their lamb, they knew it was a picture. They knew it wasn't the final lamb. They didn't understand what they were waiting for. They just knew that God was going to provide a lamb. They, by faith, were trusting that a lamb would get hung on a cross. They didn't know it was a cross. They just knew a lamb would die for them. Okay? They got saved by looking forward to a cross. You and I today get saved by looking back to a cross. The reality is we've always gotten saved at the foot of a cross. They were hoping for one. You and I are remembering one. But it's always been the cross that saves. It's a great question. Okay. Um, back to my first question about the word choose in there. Yep. Does that mean that he was choosing to have us go down a straight path and we choose differently yeah if so here's the easiest answer i can to the whole choosing thing i guarantee you that if you and i were obedient to god he's he's got a path okay those are stepping stones he's got a path and the path has you and me starting out here pretty darn cruddy and ending up looking like jesus there's the path okay The problem is, you and I have got a horrible, rotten, raunchy, wonderful, beautiful, amazing thing called free will. And with that free will, I sometimes choose to serve God. And with that same free will, I sometimes choose to dishonor God. And as I'm going down the path, there come moments, hey, it's pretty easy. You read your Bible and you go, I hate that verse. 
boy, that one stinks. All right, God, I'll obey the other two, but that one I'm not going to do. You know, this whole thing about not cussing, man, I like my cussing, okay? Or I like my habit, or I like dating that boyfriend who doesn't know you. Whatever that verse is that you and I look at and go, God, if I were God, I wouldn't have written that one. And so guess what you and I do? We go on that stone. We go, I'm going to go over here. And here's the deal, guys. Any stone besides what God called us to is disobedience, okay? So when I go to that stone and when I disobey, and so now I'm taking a sidetrack, I'm not becoming more like Jesus. If I'm dating that guy I shouldn't date, or if I'm doing that habit I know I shouldn't be doing, if I'm disobeying that passage of Scripture, when I go, God, 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 look, I, no, I don't care. You can't have control of that part of my life. Whatever it is, I'm disobeying. And in that moment, I am not becoming more like Jesus, right? I'm becoming more like me, okay? What is God going to do in that moment? He is going to spank the bohoopies out of you. That's what he's going to do. Matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 12 says, don't despise the discipline of the Lord because whoever the Lord loves, he spanks the bohoopies out of them, okay? doesn't say it quite like that, but that's what it means. Spanks the bohoopies out of you. And when he does that, he will bring you back and get you on the path. Here's the thing I think that ought to terrify us, guys. Every minute I spend over here, wasted time. Because while I live in disobedience and while I live in disregard to God, I am not becoming more like Jesus. And I'm wasting the time. And most often, not every time, sometimes we've learned a lesson and maybe we come back to the path kind of here, a little bit wiser, a little bit further. But here's what you need to know. There is no way I come back to that path as far down the path as I should be. Because I just lived a year of my life in disobedience. And chances are you come back to here and then you've got to start going where you were supposed to go in the first place. This ought to terrify you and me once we figure it out. That every minute I spend in disobedience is wasted. It's lost. I lost reward. I lost, I lost where I could have been. I lost the lessons. This ought to tear. Every, when, when a Christian finally gets this, that disobedience to God costs me tremendously, this will terrify you. It, it, I'll just be honest with you. It's why as a Christian I sit there and I go, whoa, 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 whoa. You know what God said? You know you're being disobedient. Really? Really? So you're going to go into discipline, you're going to get the spankings, you're going to waste all that, and when finally God gets your attention, you're going to be back there? Wow. It's also why once you figure this out and God comes up and goes, here's the next thing, and you go, wow, that's really hard. I'm thinking about disobeying. When you get this figured out, you go, not a chance. No way am I wasting a year of my life. No way am I going to go through all those spankings. No way all that, because... He's going to make me come back on the path anyways. He will do whatever it takes to get me back on the path or kill me, one of the two. I'm not going to do that because he's predestined me to be like Jesus. He's going to, he's going to win. I'm going to lose. Why fight? Why not submit? Matter of fact, Scripture says all of us who are mature take such a view of things that surrendering to God is actually the smartest thing I ever do. Leaving behind what drags me down and reaching forward to what God has for me. Okay, I think we're done on time. Um, yes, yeah, a matter of fact, we There are. you go. <laughs> okay. 
All right, so we blazed, guys. We got three and a half verses done tonight. That's almost a landmark record for us. But we are learning Ephesians. And uh, you'll be able to answer questions when we're done. Let's pray and we'll be done. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for questions tonight that uh, were questions of listening and discerning and trying to figure out what you were saying. And God, would you guide and direct us? God, I, I ask this. I ask that maybe if nothing else tonight, we walked away with a resolve that says, I don't get to decide what good is. God gets to decide what's good. And, and your good is always that we would look more like your son. And so, God, we're just going to invite you tonight to do what you need to do to teach us, to mold us, to shape us, to be more like Jesus. But maybe even tonight we're promising that our hearts will be a little bit softer and our wills a little bit more pliable. And just maybe you'll get a little more cooperation from us than you ever have before. Because we get it. We get that your heart for us is that we would look like Jesus Christ. So do your best with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, thank you guys.